0: Chapter Three of Bill the Conqueror by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Flick pays a call. There is something about the manner in which spring comes to England which reminds one of the overtures of a diffident puppy trying to make friends. It takes a deprecating step forward, scuttles away in a panic, steals timorously back and finally gaining confidence makes a tumultuous and joyful rush the pleasant afternoon which had lured mr sinclair hammond out to sit in his garden had been followed by a series of those discouraging april days when the sun shines feebly and spasmodically easily discouraged by any blustering cloud that swaggers across its path and chilly showers lie in wait for those who venture out without an umbrella but now two weeks later a morning had arrived which might have belonged to june a warm breeze blew languidly from the west and the sun shone royally on a grateful world so that even wimbledon common though still retaining something of that brooding air which never completely leaves large spaces of public ground on which the proletariat may at any moment scatter paper bags, achieved quite a cheerful aspect, and the garden of Holly House, across the road from the common, was practically a paradise. So at least it seemed to Flick, strolling on the lawn. The trees that fringed the wall were a green mist of young leaves, a snow of apple-blossom covered the turf of the little orchard daffodils nodded their golden heads on every side there was a heartening smell of new-turned earth and the air was filled with mingled noises ranging from the silver bubbling of a thrush in the shrubbery to the distant contralto of mrs francis hammond taking a conscientious singing lesson in the drawing-room and such was the magic of the day that not even this last manifestation of spring fever could quell flick's mood of ecstasy she was trying now to analyze her feelings why was every nerve in her body vibrating with a sort of rapturous excitement certainly not because at four thirty that afternoon she was to call at roderick's office in tilbury house and be taken by him to tea at Claridge's. She was fond of Roderick, but, whatever his merits, the thought of seeing him was not enough to intoxicate any girl, even though she and he might be engaged to be married. No, what was thrilling her, she decided, was just that vague feeling of something nice about to happen." which comes to the young at this season of the year. We greybeards, who have been deceived so often by the whisper of spring, are proof against the wheedlings of an April morning. We know that there is nothing wonderful lurking around the corner, and consequently decline to be lured into false anticipations of joy. But at twenty-one it is different, and Flick Sheridan had that feeling she paused in her walk to watch the goldfish in their cement-bottomed pool. The breeze was stronger now, and it ruffled the surface of the water, so that the goldfish had for the moment a sort of syncopated appearance. The breeze became stronger still, and shifted from west to east, and, as if spring had repented of its effusiveness, the air grew chilly. The white clouds which had been flitting across the face of the sun began to bank themselves flick turned towards the house to get a rap and as she did so there came through the open window of mr hammond's study on the ground floor a cry suggestive of dismay and wrath followed instantly by the appearance of papers which took to themselves wings and fluttered sportively about flick's head mr hammond came into sight framed in the window his hair ruffled, and a splash of ink on his forehead. Ass of a maid opened the door and started a draft. Pick him up, there's a good girl. Flick collected the papers, she handed them in through the window. Mr. Hammond vanished, and simultaneously the weather did another of its lightning changes. The wind dropped, the sun shone out stronger than ever, and Flick, abandoning all ideas of raps, returned to her stroll. She had just reached the lawn again when she became aware of a derelict piece of paper, overlooked in her recent gleaning. It was gambling over the turf in the direction of the pool, hotly pursued by Bob, the Celium terrier, who was obviously under the impression that he had before him one of the birds which he spent his life in chasing. The paper dodged and doubled like a live thing. It paused till Bob was almost on it, then playfully skipped away. Finally, finding that Bob stuck to the chase, it took the only way out and dived into the pool. Bob, hovering uncertainly on the brink, decided to let the matter rest. He turned and trotted off into the bushes. A last puff of wind from the expiring breeze attached the paper to a lily pad, and Flick, angling with a rake, was enabled to retrieve it, She was just reaching down to lift it ashore, when her eyes fell on the opening words. "'Sir, if you would save a human life!' Flick, who had nice views about the sanctity of other people's letters, read no further, but her heart was beating quickly as she raced across the lawn towards Mr. Hammond's study. "'Uncle Sinclair!' There was an exclamation of patient anguish on the other side of the window, Mr. Hammond was having a little difficulty with his article for the fortnightly on Crawshaw and Francis Thompson, a comparison and a contrast, and this was the third time he had been interrupted since breakfast. Well, the window framed him once more and his severity diminished. Oh, it's you, Flick. Will you kindly get right out of here, young woman, and give a man a chance to work? "'Go and make daisy-chains.' "'But, Uncle Sinclair, it's frightfully important.' She held up the letter. "'I couldn't help reading the first line. "'It says something about saving a human life. "'I thought you ought to have it at once.' Mr. Hammond reached behind him cautiously. The next moment a flannel pen-wiper sailed through the air and hit Flick between her earnest eyes. "'Good shot!' crowed mr hammond exultantly that'll teach you to come interrupting me about begging letters in the middle of my work but i remember the letter i get dozens of them they all say that the bed will be sold from under some poor dying woman unless one pound seven shillings and threepence is sent by return of post and they are all written by nasty grubby men who need a shave incidentally if you ever set up in the begging letter business flick never ask for any round sum like five pounds nobody ever gives five pounds but the world is full of asses who will tumble over themselves to send one pound seven and three or two pounds eleven and fivepence but uncle sinclair how do you know persisted flick with the resolute perseverance of her sex. "'Because I've looked into the thing. "'When I have leisure, I will give you some statistics "'from the charity organization. "'They prove that nine-tenths of the begging letters which go out "'are written by professionals who make an excellent living at it. "'Now leave me, child, first restoring to me that pen-wiper. "'If I hear from you again before lunch... I will brain you with the poker. But this may be one of the really genuine. It isn't. How do you know? Instinct. Away with you to your childish pastimes. Do you mind if I read it? Frame it if you like. And don't forget what I said about that poker. I am a desperate man. Flick returned to the lawn. She read the letter as she walked. And the sun though it was doing its honest best now to pretend that midsummer had arrived seemed to fade out of the sky a chill desolation stalked through the pleasant garden it was all very well for uncle sinclair to talk like that but how could he know this was the first begging letter which had ever come flick's way and she drank it in with that agonized sinking of the heart which begging-letter writers hope for so earnestly in their clients, and so rarely bring out. To Flick, every word of it rang true, and she shivered with sheer misery at the thought that such things could be on a planet which ten minutes before had seemed filled to overflowing with pure happiness. The letter was not that of a stylist, but it told a story Written by a Mrs. Matilda Pauley, of Number 9, Marmont Mansions, Battersea, it raised the curtain on a world of whose very existence Flick had until now been but dimly aware. A world of sickness and despair, of rent overdue, of wolves and landlords howling about the door. Flick, as she read it, sickened with sympathetic horror, and the gong for lunch which reached her as she paced the lawn in agony of spirit seemed like the cry of a mocking fiend lunch hot well-cooked meats toothsome salads fruit potatoes all the bread you wanted and mrs matilda polly of nine marmont mansions battersea so reduced by fate that only three pounds sixteen and fourpence sent promptly could save her from the abyss suddenly as if a voice that of mrs polly possibly had spoken in her ear flick remembered that in her bedroom upstairs she had certain gee rings necklaces a brooch she walked to the house and halfway there espied the corduroy trouser seat of john the gardener he was bending over a flower-bed a worthy and amiable fellow, with whom she had become almost chummy in February in connection with a matter of bulbs. them tulips,' observed John, not without a certain paternal pride, hoisting himself up at the sound of her approach. "'I'll be out now, before you know where you are, miss.' An hour ago Flick would have plunged light-heartedly into chatter about tulips. "'But not now. Tulips!' once of absorbing interest to her, had ceased to grip. Mrs. Polly's pneumonia had put them where they belonged, among the lesser things of life. John, said Flick, have you ever pawned anything? John's manner took on a certain wariness. His story about that missing pair of shears back in July had been well received, and he had assumed that the matter was closed. But you never knew in this world, for the world is full of scandal-mongers who spread tales about honest men. To gain time, he hitched up his corduroys and gazed woodenly at an aeroplane, which purred in the blue like a distant cat. He was about to secure a further respite by stating that there had been none of them things when he was a boy, but Flick spared him the necessity. I was reading in a book about somebody pawning something— and i wondered how they did it john was relieved now that he was assured that the subject was purely academic he could approach it with an expert's ease he proceeded to do so and a few minutes later flick was able to go in to lunch a mistress of the procedure of what gardener john described as putting up the spout or more briefly popping the lunch was just as well cooked and appetizing as flick had supposed it would be but it did not turn to ashes in her mouth, she had found a way. Something of the effervescing happiness which, until the intrusion of Mrs. Matilda Polly had animated Flick in her garden at Wimbledon, was making life a thing of joy and hope for Bill West at the hour of one that same afternoon as he strode buoyantly along Piccadilly, for who would ride in cabs or buses on such a day to keep a tryst at Mario's Restaurant with Mr. Wilfred Slingsby, the London manager of the Paradine Pulp Paper Company of New York. It was not only the weather that seemed to Bill to have lost its bleakness, but life itself. This morning, for the first time since their departure from America two weeks ago, Judson Coker had emerged from his black cloud of gloom and shown a disposition to amiability— and in a small furnished flat it is amazing what a difference a touch of cheerfulness can make in the atmosphere judson there is no disguising had taken bill's disciplinary measures hardly from a point coinciding with the passing of the three-mile limit by the steamship aquitania he had run through the gamut of the emotions from blank incredulity to stunned despair the negativing of his suggestion made almost before the aquitania had got her stern across that vital spot in the ocean that bill and he should adjourn to the smoking-room for a small one had struck him at first as rich comedy bill he had felt was ever a kidder whimsical of him to keep up with a perfectly straight face that farce of not letting a fellow have money or liquid nourishment. But towards the middle of the afternoon Judson's view began to be that, while a joke was a joke, and he as fond of a laugh as any one, there was such a thing as overdoing a jest, running it to death, and when Bill firmly declined to collaborate with him in that anti-dinner cocktail, without which, as everybody knows, food can hardly be taken into the system, tragedy definitely reared its ugly head from that moment shades of the prison-house began to chase about the growing boy so to speak and our gentle pen must decline to pursue the subject in detail it is enough to say that judson coker arrived in london a soured man and it had required many a glance at alice's photographs to console bill for having to pass the days in the sufferer's society. Apart from anything else, Judson's piteous appeals, for even the smallest sum of money, would have wrung the toughest heart, and life had been but a dreary affair in the flat, which Bill, after two days' experience of expensive hotels, had rented furnished for three months. But today things seemed different. Whether it was the influence of spring, or whether Judson's abused liver had at last begun to pick up a bit, Bill could not say. But the fact remained that the teetotaler appeared noticeably more cheery. Twice Bill had caught him smiling to himself, and at breakfast that morning, for the first time in thirteen days, he had actually laughed. A short, sad, rasping laugh, to evoke which it had been necessary for the maid of all work to trip over the carpet and spill a pint of coffee down bill's legs but still a laugh this thought bill was encouraging things he felt were looking up this lunch with mr slingsby was the outcome of one visit to the office and two telephone conversations mr slingsby may have been letting the profits of the business fall off but he certainly appeared to be no loafer. Time was money with him, and it was only now, five days after Bill had presented himself and announced his identity, that he had been able to find leisure for a sustained conversation. Even in their brief acquaintance, Mr. Slingsby had rather overpowered Bill. In the few moments which the manager had been able to give over to casual chat, His personality had made a deep impression on the young man. Wilford Slingsby was one of those shiny, breezy, forceful, nattily tailored men of any age from forty to fifty, who always look as if they had just had a shave and would be needing another in the next few hours. A dark jowl was Mr. Slingsby's, perfectly setting off his flashing smile his smile flashed out as bill entered the lobby of the restaurant he came forward with an outstretched hand radiating efficiency and goodwill and once more bill had the feeling that this man's personality was something out of the common he felt in his presence like a child and what is more like a child with flat feet and one lobe of its brain missing mr slingsby led the way into the restaurant sat down at his reserved table, urged Bill into another chair, straightened his tie, and called for the waiter. And it then became apparent that he was one of those dominant men who have a short way with waiters. He addressed the waiter in a strong, carrying voice. He heckled the waiter. He bullied the waiter. Until finally another waiter suddenly appeared, and the first one flickered away and was seen no more. Next morning, one felt, a body in dress-clothes with a spot on the shirt-front would be taken out of the Thames. Banished from Mr. Slingsby's presence, the man had seemed to feel his disgrace acutely. "'Yes, sir,' said the second waiter, briskly. He had a pencil and a notebook, which the other had lacked. In fact—' the more one thinks the thing over the more convinced one becomes that the first waiter was in the truer and deeper meaning of the word no waiter at all but merely one of those underlings whose bolt is shot when they have breathed down your neck and put a plate of rolls on the table this new arrival was made of sterner stuff altogether and mr slingsby seeming to recognize a kindred spirit became more cordial he even deigned to ask the newcomer's advice in short by the time the ordering was concluded and the hors d'oeuvres on the table a delightful spirit of camaraderie prevailed and mr slingsby had so far relaxed from his early austerity as to tell a funny story about an irishman this completed and the fish having arrived he embarked on genial conversation so you're the old man's nephew eh said mr slingsby great old boy "'And what have you been doing with yourself since you arrived?' "'Bill related the simple annals of his first week in London, "'touched on Judson, mentioned two theatrical performances "'of a musical nature which he had attended. "'Oh, so you've seen the girl in the pink pajamas? "'said Mr. Slingsby, interested. "'How did you like it? "'Think it would go in New York? "'I own part of that show, you know.' bill's feeling of belonging to a lesser order of creation became more marked he had not judson's airy familiarity with the theatrical world and men who owned parts of shows were personages to him really he said oh yes said mr slingsby carelessly i do quite a lot of that sort of thing he nodded in friendly fashion at a passing exquisite Renfrew he explained. He's starring in It Pays to Flirt at the Regent. You ought to go and see that. Good show. I'm sorry I didn't take a part of it when they offered it to me. But somehow or other the script didn't seem to read right. One misses these chances. Bill was perplexed. For a manager of the London branch of one of the largest firms in America, pulp paper seemed to mean very little in Mr. Slingsby's life, he began to think that the solution of the mystery of the fallen-off prophets might be simpler than uncle cooley had supposed something akin to dislike of this splendid person crept over him mr slingsby made him feel inferior and bill was not fond of feeling inferior and what right bill asked himself with some warmth had fellows to make fellows feel inferior when fellows the first fellows couldn't handle an excellent business in such a manner as to make it show a decent profit he looked critically across the table at mr slingsby yes he disliked the man and if the bounder continued trying to impress him with his beastly theatrical ventures and his rotten theatrical friends he ran a grave risk of being told precisely where he got off in fact decided bill no time like the present he would give him this information now true he was the man's guest and full of his hors d'oeuvres and meat but as these doubtless would be charged up to the office no nice scruples need restrain him uncle cooley he said changing the subject with an abruptness perhaps a trifle brisk for mr slingsby had just been commenting apropos of a spectacular young lady who had recently passed the table on chorus girls their morals and the opportunities a man financially interested in the theatre had of enjoying their stimulating society uncle cooley said bill coldly now thoroughly convinced that his dislike amounted to positive loathing asked me while i was over here to try and find out why the profits on the london end of the business had fallen off so badly he's very worried about it.' There was a pause. The introduction of the cold business note seemed to have stunned Mr. Slingsby. He looked surprised, hurt, astonished, wounded, pained, amazed, and cut to the quick. "'What?' he cried, and his demeanour was that of one who has been stabbed in the back by a trusted friend.' for half an hour he had been honoring bill with his cordial geniality and now this had happened you could see that wilfred slingsby was shaken but he pulled himself together he laughed nastily oh, Prophet's fallen off he said regarding bill unfavorably he did not try to conceal his opinion that bill a brief while before the companion of his revels now ranked in his esteem about on a level with the first waiter if you ask me i should say your uncle ought to be glad there are any profits at all let me tell you that there aren't many men in my position who could show such a good balance sheet not many believe me he glowered darkly at bill you understand the pulp and paper business thoroughly of course no said bill shortly It was just the sort of question this sort of man would ask bitter regret for a misspent youth surged through him if only he had employed those wasted hours in learning all about pulp paper and what more entertaining subject could a young man in the springtime of life find for his attention he would now be in a position to cope with this slingsby as it was he feared that slingsby was going to trample on him his surmise was correct mr slingsby trampled all over him ah said that gentleman with odious superiority in that case it is hardly worth while for me to go into the matter still i will try to put it in the simplest nursery language mr slingsby's idea of putting it in simple nursery language was to pour over bill a flood of verbiage about labor conditions rates of exchange and economic practicabilities which had his young friend gasping like a fish before he had spoken ten words no wood entering mr paradine's paper factory had ever been more well and truly reduced to pulp than was bill at the end of fifteen minutes And when, after taking a quick breath at the conclusion of this period, his host showed signs of beginning Chapter Two, he could endure no more. He realized that he was retiring in disorder and leaving the field to the enemy. But that could not be helped. Glancing at his watch, he muttered an apology and rose. Mr. Slingsby, restored to his old cheery self by this triumph, became instantly cordial once more got to go he said perhaps i ought to be moving myself he called for the bill signed it in a bold hand hurled silver on the plate nodded like a monarch in acknowledgment of the waiter's charmed gratitude and led the way out coming my way i think i'll be getting back to my flat i have some letters to write why not go to your club i don't belong to any clubs in london hope you're comfortable in this flat of yours. If you feel like moving, mention my name at the Regal, and they'll treat you right.' "'I have taken the flat for three months,' said Bill, resolved that nothing would ever induce him to mention this man's name anywhere. "'Where are you living?' "'Battersea, Marmont Mansions.' Mr. Slingsby raised his black eyebrows. "'Battersea?' why on earth do you want to go and bury yourself in a hole like battersea because it's cheap said bill between set teeth taxi said mr slingsby scorning to plunge any deeper into the degrading subject and bowled swiftly away like a roman emperor going somewhere in his chariot so strangely is human nature constituted that it was this unconcealed contempt on the other's part for his little nook that definitely set the seal on bill's dislike the captain of industry manner the theatrical swank the lecture on pulp paper all these things he might have forgiven it would not have been easy but he might have done it but this was unpardonable be it never so merely rented furnished a man's little home is his little home and if he is a man of spirit he resents fellows with blue chins sneering at it by the time bill put his latch key in the door of number 9 marmont mansions he was in a state of such nervous hostility to mr slingsby as only tobacco and the ungirt loin could soothe He removed his coat, his collar, his tie, and his shoes, lit a pipe, and settled down on the sofa in the sitting room. He brooded sullenly. Darned gas bag! He brooded further, pulling all that stuff. He brooded yet again. I believe the man's a crook, and I'm going to keep an eye on him. He was still chewing on this stern resolve when the doorbell rang he got up reluctantly he assumed the ringer to be judson who had a habit of forgetting his latch-key he went along the passage and opened the door it was not judson it was a girl there was a pause it is always disconcerting for a young man of orthodox views on costume to discover after going to the door to admit a male friend and not having bothered to put on his coat, collar, or shoes for the task, that he is face to face with a strange girl. And this was a distinctly attractive girl. Bill, as we know, was in love with Alice Coker. Nevertheless, his eyesight remained good, and he was consequently quite able to see how distinctly attractive this girl was. Girls, of course, fell into two classes— alice coker and others but there was no distinguishing the fact that his visitor came very high up in the ranks of the others she was a slim fair-haired girl with a trim figure delightfully arrayed in a dress of some brown material it was not really brown it was beige but bill had not an eye for these niceties he was particularly aware of her eyes they were very blue and seemed unusually large she was staring at him and to his embarrassed thinking staring with a sort of incredulous horror as if he heard her in some sensitive spot bill blushed pinkly and endeavored to wriggle his feet under the mat in the shop in the burlington arcade where he had purchased them those socks had looked extremely pleasing but now he would fain have hidden their gleaming pinks and greens from sight and he reflected moodily how rash a young man is who in this world of sudden and unexpected crises takes off his shoes in the daytime so that taking one thing with another bill in that first instant contributed nothing towards the task of making this interview go off with a swing the girl was the first to speak good gracious she said bill felt that this was getting worse and worse surely she went on blinking those large blue eyes it's mr west to his other discomforts bill now became aware that a species of cold perspiration had added itself it was bad enough to encounter this distinctly attractive girl in a shoeless coatless collarless and as he now perceived, a hole in the sockful condition. But to make it worse, she seemed to remember meeting him before, and he couldn't even begin to place her. It was not one of those cases of a mere name slipping from the mind, preventing the sufferer from applying a label to a remembered face. She was a complete stranger. You've forgotten me. F- forgotten you, responded Bill stoutly. "'feeling the while as if some muscular person "'were stirring up his interior organs with a pole. "'I should say not. forgotten you?' (laughs) "'He laughed metallically. "'What an idea. "'It's-it's just-the fact is, I'm bad at names.' "'Felicia Sheridan.' "'Bill felt that his face must be turning grey. "'Felicia Sheridan.' he said, Sheridan, of course. Well, considering that you once saved my life, said Flick, I should have been hurt if you had forgotten me altogether. One of the advantages of being sparing in one's acts of heroism is that it makes them easy to remember. Bill was in the happy position of having saved only one life in his whole career. A wave of the most poignant relief flooded over him, "'Good heavens! Yes!' he ejaculated. He stared at her with an intensity that rivaled her own of a few moments back. "'But you've altered so,' he said. "'Have I? Have you?' babbled Bill. "'When I saw you last, you were a skinny kid, all legs and freckles. Ah, uh, I mean—' He gave it up. "'Uh, won't you come in?' he said they went into the sitting-room bill hastily thrust his feet into the shoes which lay brazenly near the sofa and feverishly started to don his collar all this took time thereby enabling flick who had looked delicately away during the operation to inspect the room inspecting the room she could hardly fail to observe the photographs of miss alice coker if she had missed half a dozen of them she was bound to see the other six she observed them something like a shadow seemed to fall upon flick she endeavored to be reasonable it was hardly to be expected that a splendid fellow like bill would have remained uncaught after five years besides he had only met her about ten times when she was as he had justly remarked a skinny kid all legs and freckles Furthermore, she was engaged to be married to an estimable young man, of whom, she told herself, she was very, very fond. Nevertheless, a shadow did fall upon her. Bill, meanwhile, shod and no longer in the semi-nude, had leisure to speculate on the mystery of her visit. It puzzled him completely. "'I expect—' said flick at this moment you're wondering how on earth i come to be here the fact is i must have called at the wrong address the policeman at the corner told me this was marmont mansions it is marmont mansions battersea marmont mansions battersea number nine number nine then who demanded flick is mrs matilda polly bill could make nothing of the question mrs who polly mrs matilda polly bill shook his head i never heard of her but she lives here the implied slur on the bachelor respectability of his little home drew from bill a shocked denial well that's the address she gave in her letter said flick fumbling in her bag look this letter came for my uncle you remember my uncle it came this morning bill's face as he took the letter expressed only bewilderment this bewilderment as he started to read seemed to flick to deepen and then suddenly there came a startling change all his features appeared to dissolve in one enormous grin and the next moment he had tottered to the sofa and was holding on to its friendly support laughing helplessly (laughs) It's judson he moaned meeting flick's astonished eyes and reading in them a demand for some clue to this strange behavior judson bill's hand swept round in a spacious wave of indication at the photographs man who lives with me judson coker brother of the girl i'm engaged to oh said flick she spoke dully women are inexplicable there was no reason why she should have spoken dully she was engaged herself to an estimable young man of whom she was very very fond and she was even now on her way to pick him up at his office and be taken by him to tea at Claridge's. what could it matter to her if a comparative stranger like bill west was engaged to? nevertheless she spoke dully Bill was wiping his eyes. I brought Judson over from America with me. He's been cutting up a bit too freely, and I'm acting as a sort of nursemaid to him. He isn't allowed to have any money at all, and this is the way he's trying to get it. I thought he looked more cheerful the last day or two. Can you beat it? I could expect almost anything of old Jud, but writing begging letters is a new one flick joined in his laughter but a little wryly no high-spirited girl likes to realize that she has been wrong and her elders right well i wish i had known that before she said i pawned my brooch to get money for this mrs polly bill was touched he had still quite a lot of unexpended laughter left inside him but he decided that it would be best to keep it in "'That was awfully kind of you. "'Don't leave it here for Judson.' "'I won't. "'And if you feel like hitting your friend Judson "'with something hard and heavy when he comes in,' "'said Flick forcefully, "'don't stop yourself because you think I may not approve. "'I'd like to be here to see you do it.' "'Why not? "'He'll be back soon. "'Stay on.' "'I can't, thanks. "'I've got to be in Fleet Street in half an hour. "'Good-bye, Mr. West.' How strange our meeting again like this. How is your uncle? Oh, very fit. And yours? Very well, thanks. Reassured as to the health of their respective uncles, they seemed to find difficulty in selecting a topic of conversation. Flick moved to the door. I'll come down and put you into a cab, said Bill. No, don't bother, said Flick. It's such a lovely day. I... think i'll walk as far as sloane square here bill perceived was an opening for him to offer to accompany her but a boat was sailing to-morrow and he had not yet written his bi-weekly letter to alice alice's claims were paramount well good-bye she said we shall meet again soon i hope i hope so good-bye Bill, as the front door closed, suddenly realized that he had omitted to ascertain where she lived. For a moment he thought of running after her and inquiring, No, he really must get on with that letter to Alice. He returned to the sitting room. Flick, as she walked out into the sunshine, had an odd feeling that life, promising as it had seemed this morning, was in reality rather flat. And, strangely, but women are strange. She found herself thinking a little unkindly of Roderick. Bill had finished his letter to Alice, read, reread, sealed, stamped, and addressed it, when a key clicked in the front door and presently there entered to him Judson Coker. "'Any mail for, uh, anybody?' inquired Judson. Physically, enforced abstinence had done Judson good, his face had lost a certain unwholesome pallor which had characterized it a fortnight back and there had begun to steal into his cheeks quite a rosy pinkness his eyes moreover were clear and bright and he no longer indulged in that little trick of his of blinking and wriggling his neck around the edge of his collar against these corporeal gains must be set a gravity of demeanor which was entirely new Judson's habitual manner was now that of the man who has looked upon life and found it a washout. You're always asking for mail this last day or two, said Bill. Well, why not? said Judson, defensively. Why shouldn't a fellow ask for mail? Anyway, there isn't any, said Bill. You must be patient, my lad. You can't expect people to answer by return of post. Judson started. The recently acquired pink left his face. He licked his lips. What do you mean? I think it's a shame, said Bill vehemently. If you've got pneumonia and are behind with the rent and haven't tasted food for three days, why the devil doesn't Mr. Polly get busy and support you? Judson stared hideously. Through a mist he saw that his friend was giving way to unseemly mirth how did you find out he choked bill partially recovered himself he sat back feeling weak there had been moments since their departure from america when he regretted having taken judson along with him but the sight of the other's face now more than made up for all the trifling discomforts he had had to undergo there was a girl in here just now he explained "'who was so touched by your letter "'that she had pawned her brooch to get money for you.' "'Judson shook with emotion. "'Where is it?' he asked eagerly. "'Where's what? "'The money the girl brought.' "'His face assumed a cold expression. "'I need hardly remind you, West,' he said stiffly, "'that that money belongs to me. "'Legally, I shouldn't wonder.' so if you have pouched it i'll thank you to hand it over immediately good lord man you don't suppose i've got it do you directly we found out that it was you who had written the letter i told her to take the money away shudson gave him one withering look and you call yourself a friend he said bill undaunted by his attitude followed him as he swung off and strode down the passage He wanted to clear up further points that had perplexed him. "'How did you come to think of this stunt?' he asked as Judson opened the front door. "'It was the smoothest trick I ever heard of.' "'Father was always getting begging letters,' said Judson coldly. "'I saw no reason why it shouldn't work.' "'But how did you happen to pick on Miss Sheridan?' "'I never sent any letter to any Miss Sheridan. She must have an uncle or something whose name begins with an H. I wrote to all the H's in Who's Who. Why the H's? Why not? That's where the book happened to open. He withdrew his coat sleeve aloofly from Bill's grasp and proceeded down the stairs. Bill leaned over the banister, still curious. Another aspect of the matter had occurred to him. Half a second he called. Where did you get the money to pay for the stamps? I pawned a gold pencil. You haven't got a gold pencil. You had, said Judson, and clattered out into the great open spaces. End of chapter 3